0: We welcome our Rejoice worshipers as well as those who are worshiping online. Our second scripture reading comes from the book of Acts. This passage is known as the conversion of Saul. Saul was from Tarsus and did not believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He made it his mission to persecute and destroy all believers of the way. Listen now for the word of God as it speaks to you this day. Meanwhile Saul, still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord went to the high priest and asked him for letters to the synagogues of Damascus so that he might find anyone who belonged to the way men or women he might bring them bound to Jerusalem now as he was going along and approaching Damascus suddenly a light from heaven flashed around him He fell to the ground and heard a voice saying to him, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And Saul asked, Who are you, Lord? The reply came, I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting. But get up and enter the city, and you will be told what you are to do. The men who were traveling with him stood speechless, because they heard the voice but saw no one. Saul got up from the ground, and though his eyes were open, he could see nothing. So they led him by the hand and brought him into Damascus. For three days he was without sight, and neither ate nor drank. Now now there was a disciple in Damascus named Ananias. The Lord said to him in a vision, Ananias, and he answered, Here I am, Lord. The Lord said to him, Get up and go to the street called Straight." And at the house of Judas, look for a man of Tarsus named Saul. At this moment he is praying, and he has seen in a vision a man named Ananias come in and lay his hands on him so that he might regain his sight. But Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard from many about this man, how much evil he has done to your saints in Jerusalem. And here he has the authority from the chief priest to bind all who invoke your name. But the Lord said to him, go. For he is an instrument who I have chosen to bring my name before Gentiles and kings and before the people of Israel. I myself will show him how much he must suffer for the sake of my name. So Ananias went and entered the house. He laid his hands on Saul and said, brother Saul... The Lord Jesus, who appeared to you on your way here, has sent me so that you may regain your sight and be filled with the Holy Spirit. Immediately, something like scales fell from Saul's eyes, and his sight was restored. He got up and was baptized, and after taking some food, he regained his strength. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. For three days, Saul was blind. He neither ate nor drank. Three days. Saul, who was once so full of vim and vigor, so certain that he was right to persecute and jail those who were becoming Christian, now struck dumb and blind through an encounter with the risen Christ. The modern medicine term for Saul's condition would be amorosis fugax. Amarosis is a Greek word that means darkening. Patients who experience this describe it like the onset of a veil or a shade being lowered down over their eyes. The Latin fugax means fleeting or temporary. Thus we have the medical term, temporary blindness. To me, it makes perfect sense that Saul's mind and body temporarily shuts down. His senses hit the pause button for time to process what has just happened. Three days. Days to think, to reflect. Days to discern the message from God and how Saul is to change his ways. Priest and theologian Richard Rohr would say that those three days gave Saul the opportunity to begin to transform from a junior to an elder. In Rohr's book Falling Upward, Spirituality for the Two Halves of Life, Rohr proposes that there are indeed two halves of life into which of us, most of us, live into living into nurturing our souls or suffocating our God-given spirit. Rohr explains that in the first half of life, we are tasked with building our life container, our identity. We focus on not only surviving, but developing who we are to succeed in society. Our containers contain our family, our work, our neighborhoods, our memberships to groups, developing and espousing our values to our children and to the world, the friends that we keep company with. Some of us might choose to only associate with those who look and think like we do. But as we are building this container in life, we are juniors. Juniors are young, energetic go-getters. They are people who are certain about what they think, and they are passionate about sharing their convictions. In other words, Rohr writes, if one talks too much and too loudly, shares their opinions in an attempt to convince you they are right, that person is probably a junior. But just to be clear, being a junior is not a bad thing. It's a necessary step from childhood to adulthood. We all go through being juniors. And certainly in the book of Acts, before Saul encounters the risen Christ, he is a junior. At some point, though, in different stages of our life, things happen to us or around us that give us pause. Maybe it is some kind of loss. Maybe it is a failing. Or maybe it's a revelation that things are not quite what we thought they were supposed to be. Whatever the happening, we are given cause to stop, to reflect, to rethink our priorities. This happening invites us to examine life a little differently. And when we do, we are forever changed. Our minds and bodies awaken and are alive like they've never been before. And all of a sudden, we're ready to look at those contents in our container, and we might want to throw some of those things out. Roar calls this process falling upward. We fall. We fall away from the need to be in the spotlight or to be successful by society standards, and we fall upward toward the second half of life. And for the Christian community, that part of life is time where we willingly and joyfully replace some of the content of our life container. We might remove items that we used to believe were so important as we were trying to live up to society standards and be successful. And instead, we'd much rather spend our time in meaningful experiences and with people who share our desire to live out Christian centered lives, deeper, more meaningful, less driven or self focused. As elders, we grow less rigid, less opinionated. We listen more than we speak. We welcome the gray areas where things are not always black and white, but they're somewhere in between. And we look forward to opportunities to grow. Falling upward happens to people at different stages. It's not a chronological journey. It might be when you're a young adult and something happens that changes you forever. Could be a midlife awakening. I don't believe in midlife crisis, I do believe it's an awakening. Still, others do fall upward only after the children are gone and they have retired. And they have time to really examine who they are. Do they like? this container or is it time to fall upward? The story of Saul's conversion into Paul on the road to Damascus is indeed an example of a junior falling upward. It is a holy encounter. It's an intervention and Paul must re-examine his life container. We know this because of all the letters he writes to the churches that are growing. For example, he writes to the church in Colossus, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, meekness, and patience. Clothe yourselves with love. When the scales fall from Paul's eyes, his weaknesses are revealed, and he's no longer blind to his own judgmental nature, his bias, his exclusionary posture toward the people of God. And he is humble in accepting these blind spots, and recognizes that he must do things differently. Do you know what some of your blind spots are? They're attitudes or postures we present to others that promote our opinions, our biases, our dislikes. Blind spots are difficult to recognize and even more painful to claim. But if we're willing to do the hard work of introspection, we can let metaphorical scales fall from our eyes And honestly see that these attitudes actually mask fear, weakness, or a flaw. And they give us the opportunity to change. These blind spots are often contrary to living into the fruit of the Spirit. You remember those. Paul says that as a chosen people, we are not to live by the things of this world that are desired by the flesh. But we are to live by the fruit of the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, Patience, kindness, generosity, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Those who live by the fruit of the Spirit are indeed elders, and they have deep faith and character. David Brooks writes in his book, The Road to Character, that each one of us has tendencies towards selfishness, pride, greed, vanity, gluttony, envy. And on our own, we really cannot become mature in the deepest qualities of character, those qualities of courage, honesty, and humility. He states that we need redemptive assistance from the outside, assistance from God, from family and friends, from our traditions and exemplars. Drawing on these outside sources as we face our weaknesses and grow can be difficult, but it is necessary. And sometimes we'll have an extraordinary encounter or happening where we're given that opportunity to quiet ourselves and awaken with a new vision and perspective. How about for you? Have you ever had one of those extraordinary encounters or a moment that was a pause in your life? And after the revelation and the event happened, your attitude was totally different? Well, I have. This past June, I flew across the country to California to take the fourth of six classes as I worked towards my doctorate in pastoral care and counseling. Unlike previous classes and times away in San Francisco, I admit I didn't wanna go. You can ask my patient colleagues on staff. You can ask my supportive, loving family. I drove everybody crazy with my complaining. I was whiny. Well, first, there were all these textbooks to read. They were really, really big. And I had to memorize the glossary for one of the textbooks. And then there were these case studies I had to write and turn in ahead of time. But more than anything, I just felt this class was irrelevant to me in my role as your pastor. The course was called Interfaith and Intercultural Counseling. As in... Counseling people of different faiths, counseling people culturally different from me. I am a white southern PCUSA pastor and I counsel predominantly white southern Presbyterian church members. Hello, why am I taking this class? The main textbook we had to be versed in was called Counseling the Culturally Diverse. It was 900 pages long. And it was written by a husband and wife psychology team, Darrell Wing Sue and David Sue. The first chapter defined and explained the obstacles to becoming a culturally competent counselor, predominantly through sharing stories about students who took the class with the authors and their reactions to the textbook. Some of the stories that were shared were that the students were furious that this class was required and that it didn't apply to them. Students were insulted that the authors assumed they might have a bias towards another race or someone from a different culture. The authors included those stories because this class should be required. They write, the theory and practice of Western counseling as it has evolved in the last 40 years has blind spots. The U.S. population has grown racially diverse and this means more important than ever is for counselors to be multiculturally competent. This textbook, the only one of its kind, is now required to bridge that gap for counselors. To become culturally competent, one must be well-versed and sensitive to the values and needs and implications when caring for Native Americans, African Americans, Asian Americans, Pacific Islanders, Latinos and Latinas, Jewish Americans, Arab and Muslim Americans. Okay, I read my textbook. I got on the plane, and I went to sunny California. I arrived late Sunday evening and found my Airbnb, and I woke up Monday morning to a last-minute email from my professor. I started to grumble again. All of the students in this class were required to attend the 8.30 chapel service that preceded the 9 o'clock session. Ooh, I was not happy. I pulled out my backpack and I put those textbooks in there and started tromping through the neighborhood up to the seminary, grumbling about how tired I was and I had jet lag. Well, the temperature was 7 degrees and no humidity and it was Beautiful. And the seminary was built on the top of this steep hill back in 1871. The architecture is stunning. In fact, many of the students affectionately call the campus Hogwarts. So I tromped up the steep hill, and as I get to the chapel, I hear gospel music playing. Inside, sitting on a circle of chairs, was our chaplain, and she was listening to music and swaying. And so I threw my backpack down and kind of tiptoed in and sat down and tried to sway and listen. Other students started gathering and that felt a little bit better. And after we were all ready, our chaplain read to us a passage from the book of Job. This passage is the voice of the youngest friend of Job's who's come to support him and help him find meaning in his suffering. His name is Elihu. And up until now, Elihu has been silent All the other friends have given their opinions. And finally, Elihu offers his words. Listen to them. I am young in years, and you are old. And that is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom. But it is the spirit in the person, the breath of the Almighty, that gives understanding. Listen to it one more time. I am young in years and you are old, and that is why I was fearful, not daring to tell you what I know. I thought age should speak, advanced years should teach wisdom, but it is the spirit in the person, the breath of the Almighty that gives understanding. Ruth read the passage several times, and then she asked us this question. Recall a time you were afraid to speak for fear of not being heard. Recall a time I was afraid to speak for fear of not being heard? Does she know me? I stayed silent because I couldn't think of one time when I didn't let my voice be known. As a youth, a young adult in college, I was always encouraged to speak up, share my thoughts and opinions. Seminary. And now here at First Presbyterian Church, my voice has always been welcomed. So was there ever a time I was afraid to speak? Have you ever been afraid to speak? I left chapel in silence and kept thinking in my head and went up to class, and the professor introduced himself. He was Dr. Chapani, a 70-year-old man from Argentina, a Mennonite pastor, and a professor of pastoral care and counseling. He began his lecture. The goal for the course, yeah, I know, it's in the textbook, cultural competence, having in-depth understanding of diverse attitudes, beliefs, behaviors, practices, and communication patterns. These all attribute to factors such as race, ethnicity, socioeconomic status, physical and mental ability, age, gender, sexual orientation. Only when this knowledge and practice are thoroughly understood would we, the students, be culturally competent to counsel others. I looked around the room at my fellow classmates. There were three Roman Catholic priests, one from Ghana, one from Nigeria, and one from India. There was an African-American male pastor who serves an AME Zion Church in Berkeley. A female African-American pastor who serves the United Church of Christ in Fairfield, California. A Jewish woman, granddaughter of a Holocaust survivor, who identifies as a Buddhist in spiritual practice and is a certified chaplain who conducts grief workshops for those who believe in a higher power. And then there was me. White, Southern, Presbyterian pastor. Following his opening remarks, the professor invited us to share about ourselves. What was our context of ministry? And why did we choose to take the course? Well, you know me. I love to talk. Love to volunteer to kick things off, warm up the room, share about myself, make some jokes, put others at ease. I'm usually one of those students who jumps right in. But I found myself silent almost paralyzed, silent because I was remembering chapter one of the textbook, the one where the students were complaining about taking the class, the one where the students were insulted that they needed the class. And I was silent as the words of my friend and colleague, Shannon Johnson Kirshner, came to my head. You remember Shannon from Fourth Church in Chicago. She was our Mullen Forum preaching and teaching pastor last year. She had shared this profound insight with us. For the Presbyterian Church USA to begin thriving, not just existing, we need to allow the Holy Spirit to blow in and through us. We have to figure out how to give the microphone to others who have, as our brief statement of faith says, have long been silenced. Our call right now is to listen to a radically inclusive collection of voices As they tell us what is important to them about their faith and their church and how they are trying to live out their baptism in the world. And so, since I was representing the PCUSA, there was a reason God had silenced my voice. And so I sat still and I listened. I really listened. I listened and drank in the diversity of people whom now, eight months later, I call friends. I listened and learned about who they were, the sacrifices they had made to go into ministry. I listened for how and why this class was important for them, and how much they had looked forward to coming to this class, and how grateful they were that professionals were finally recognizing the gap. Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote, the first service that one owes to the other in the fellowship consists of listening to them. And so I did just that. I listened. And I realized why I was there. I recognized that I didn't need to go first. And I didn't want to go first. I really did just want to listen. And the whole week I found myself talking less, and listening more. I learned what it meant to give the microphone to another. And I met people who I would have never met before, from all walks of life, who shared openly and deeply. Now, you all might find my story naive, and I don't blame you. But for me, it was a profound awakening. How often do I spend seven hours a day with people so vastly different than me. It was as scales had fallen from my eyes. Have you ever had a moment where the scales have fallen from your eyes? A moment where your perspective and vision is so altered you are radically changed? During our last class together the professor confided in us why he made us go to chapel every day. He said an unspoken goal for him, for us as students, was to become culturally humble. Pastors and counselors truly need to engage in self reflection and self critique. To become culturally humble, we must be open and to cultivate a desire of developing partnerships with people and groups different from ourselves. We must also advocate to fix power imbalances that never should have existed in the first place. And in sacred spaces such as that chapel or this sanctuary, that can happen. A time for a new perspective. A time for deepening friendships. How very wise. As the class ended, he asked us to affirm one another. Go around the room and say something you learned from your classmate. Well, I jumped in that time. I had learned so much from these new friends and then one of my classmates looked at me and he said, Dolly, you have given me hope in the white race. I was stunned. I didn't know he didn't like me. I didn't know that he had a negative opinion of white people the whole week. He had been so respectful when he spoke, listened to me when I did speak. We had eaten lunch together in the dining hall. We actually met two weeks ago and had lunch again. And it dawned on me that maybe, just maybe, scales had fallen from his eyes too. Every time I leave San Francisco, I'm a different person, a different person for the better. But this one class deepened and changed me, and scales that I did not know needed to fall away fell away. And for me and each of our classmates, when our sight was restored at the end of the week, It was a vision like none before, broader, deeper, and wider. I think maybe, just maybe, I might be beginning to understand how it feels to fall upward. Thanks be to God. Amen.